Welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from Training Industry. Hi, and Happy New Year. This episode of the Business of Learning is sponsored by Training Industry Research. As a training professional, your job is to effectively manage the business of learning. You probably listen to this podcast to gain insights on L&D trends being used by some of the most innovative thought leaders in our market. But did you know that training industry also provides data-driven analysis and best practices through our premium research reports? Our entire catalog, including reports on topics such as deconstructing 70-2010, women's access to leadership development, learner preferences, and the state of the training market, just to name a few, can be found at trainingindustry.com slash shop research. New insights create new ways for L&D to do business. Let training industry research reports assist you in taking your learning initiatives to new heights. Go to trainingindustry.com slash shop research to view our entire catalog. Hello and welcome to a new season of the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders podcast from Training Industry. I'm Sarah Gallo, Associate Editor at Training Industry, here with my co-host Taryn Aish, Managing Editor. Hi, and Happy New Year. I'm still adjusting to the fact that we're not just in a new year, but in a new decade. And as we enter the 2020s, it's a good time to consider what the future of work looks like and to make sure it brings equal opportunity to everyone. That's why we're speaking today with Shane Kennedy, Vice President of Workforce Development at Source America. I know Shane from a project that we worked on last year. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Shane, can you share with our audience a little bit about who Source America is and, and what you do there and maybe a little bit on the project that we worked on together? Oh, sure. Um, so Source America is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our organization facilitates the employment of persons with disabilities through a national network of independent community service providers. Um, so we have around 700 or so um, that we work with, and they're located all throughout the country, including the territories of the United States. We are one of three organizations, along with the National Industries for the Blind and the American Foundation for the Blind, that operate under the Federal Ability One program. So we have a pretty unique designation as a central nonprofit agency in the United States. A little bit about me. Um, I've been in the disability community for 18 years um, of my career. Most recently, I uh, became Vice President of Workforce Development here at Source America. Under that, I have a portfolio of programs and some very inspiring change makers that work on my teams that are focused on the social and economic mobility of persons with disabilities. So I, I through my career, I've, I've done research, I've, I've written some, some papers and reports, and have done some policy advising, but mostly focused on the intersection of trends that are impacting how people with disabilities engage in the workforce. I have a master's in social entrepreneurship from George Mason University and was um, a graduate research fellow with the Aspen Institute during my academic career and I'm currently a fellow with the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce. Uh, A bit on the project. So Taryn graciously joined us for this very ambitious project that we have, the results of which will be published uh, in the coming months. But came together with a group of stakeholders from the public sector, the private sector, the disability community, um, academic fields, to think about the the future of work and what that means for persons with disabilities throughout the United States. And as a starting point, we mapped the current landscape of employment for the community as we understood it to really drill down on some of the causal relationships between what's working and what's not working and then use that as a springboard to design some ideas for what would make significant change in the future to get to a future state that we would all aspire to 
be proud of and be part of. Yeah, that's great, Shane. And going off of that, the future of work in and of itself is a phrase that's bandied about a lot right now. What do you think people actually mean when they use this phrase? And what do you mean when you use it if maybe you have a different definition yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, so the, the most com- common association uh, I think people have with that phrase is kind of the rise of automation and the potential impact on the labor market. And uh, the, the most common imagery that you see are robots and usually humanoid looking robots that are used in reports and publications when people are talking about the future of work. And through that, we often focus on the negative impacts um, to the displacement of workers by technology. But there's also some potential bright spots within that where human labor is positively augmented by technology. There's also a lot of groups that are out there that are doing some very exciting work looking at, you know, through this lens of the future of work, uh, non-traditional forms of work like the on-demand or gig economy, the idea of shareholder primacy, and the, the idea of a new social contract between employers and workers, and variations in geographic impact of automation and globalization. Our definition of the future of work, um, when we talk about the research that we've done, the projects that we've done, and how it relates to the, the disability community, is really the intersection of social, legislative, economic, and technological trends, and how that's impacting you know, where, when, and how people engage with work, uh, specifically persons with disabilities. What do you believe are some of the most significant changes that the workplace will see in the next several years? Sure. So the, the idea of adapting to technological change is by no means a new thing, right? We've had multiple revolutions, industrial revolutions, technological revolutions throughout history where industries, where employment has changed significantly. And a lot of the speculation currently is about whether this new point in history represents a, a divergence from some of those, those past things that we've seen. But ultimately, workers are always adapting to new technology and therefore having to acquire new skills because the companies that they work for are trying to remain competitive in their marketplaces. And that rate of disruption will not be even across the labor market or industries. So I think getting to the point of your question, even the idea of the workplace itself is an evolving concept um, because people find work through various means, through platforms from home or in their cars, um, ride-sharing services, and those things are in response to demand by people and creating interpersonal value. And then the idea of uh, more and more remote work as people utilize technology in different ways. There are even examples of persons with disabilities um, remotely engaging with work through robots. If they have barriers to transportation, they are actually speaking through the robots as the robots provide customer service in a food industry. So the idea of the workplace itself is even an evolving concept. It definitely seems like it. And how do you think that all these changes that are going to happen in the future will impact workers? And how do you think they will also impact employers as well? So from the idea of the worker's standpoint, there will be an urgency to gain new skills in response to these changes. Those include soft skills, um, so creating interpersonal value, um, which is often used as a kind of a beacon for what the future might be, what might be sustainable in the future, right, is customer service, empathy, those things that are not easily automated away. Um, But then there's also technical skills and how we interact with and benefit from technology. So that urgency to gain new skills, but that's going to be different for individuals in different contexts. So the access to those skill acquisition programs is going to vary geographically. It's going to vary by um, economic 
status? You know, what is affordable in terms of those programs? And are those individuals currently attached to companies that are willing to invest in their workforce and see a benefit there? Employers are really in a position to help identify what the skills for the future will be because they are looking at their industries. They're looking at um, the cost benefit of, of investing in technology and understanding the value that workers can still create as they bring on new and new technology. So if they see a benefit in investing in their workforce, they can identify those skills for the future and orient their training programs in that direction. But largely, this conversation applies to those individuals who are attached to the labor force. The millions of people that are not attached to the labor force, um, that's where there's an area of concern because will there be an investment in them? and the skills for the future and the opportunities for the future if they're not currently even counted in the unemployment rates or recognized within the, the larger context of the labor market, who is going to invest in them? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Who are those people and, um, and why, why are we concerned so much about, about them, especially in the future of work? Sure. So in our case, we're talking about persons with disabilities, you know, over 10 million persons with disabilities who are not attached to the labor market in the United States. And uh, across age demographics, across varying degrees of economic status and, and educational attainment, so much diversity, so much context that's wrapped up in that. But, you know, looking statistically, that, that number of individuals, if society largely does not assign a commensurate amount of value to different groups, then there's going to be a lack of investment in those groups in their education, in their skill acquisition, in their supports in employment and giving them opportunities. So the concern is as we move towards this future state and as people who are predisposed to be very successful in the use of technology, comfortable with the use of technology, have always had access to technology, they will continue to accelerate in their success. Whereas the individuals who don't have that access, who haven't been invested in, there is an opportunity for them to fall even farther behind and create these widening social divides. And how can employers ensure equitable employment and advancement opportunities as we move into the future of work? So given the, the idea of um, investing, right, investing in workers, seeing in value in groups um, and diversity, and I, I don't want to say that we can ensure anything, but the underlying problem is, is a social one where we place you know, dis- disparate amounts of value on different groups. So we need to work towards progress in that direction in equity and inclusion. So it's, it's about fundamentally challenging bias towards others. So in the case of persons with disabilities, it's a recognition that they're no less capable of contributing to the productivity, profits, and culture of an organization than their non-disabled peers. And there's a lot of barriers to overcome within that mindset. So awareness of the diversity and skills, value, and talent within the community, we often see this as a, a typical question that's asked is what kind of jobs can persons with disabilities do? And you know, really, would you ask that question about any other group? Um, so it underscores kind of a level of uh, bias or, or, or an association with persons with disabilities and limited expectations. So employers need to be receptive to learning and understanding and kind of expanding their thought process. And then based on that, uh, authentically commit to being inclusive. Um, it's, it's a mindset and culture shift. Other things that we can kind of engage on are stigmas around workplace accommodations. We all, as employees, have some level of accommodation in our work. 
and it's it's varying degrees of context and investment that goes into that but it's about really underscoring the value that people can create if given the opportunity and if given the accommodations to be engaged in that work and then the the processes used to identify screen and, and interview candidates must be inclusive so as we rely more and more on technology to identify potential candidates, the, the bias that are programmed into algorithms for screening out candidates really can have a negative impact on the disability community. And that's something that employers should be aware of and should strive to overcome. On the flip side of that, are there any opportunities that you see, um, you know, these, these new technologies and automation, um, kind of the future of work in general, as we've been talking about it, do you see any opportunities this presents to help individuals with disabilities become more included in the workplace, either from the employer standpoint or from the employee standpoint? Absolutely. So, you know, moving from some of the, the kind of scarier, more negative things that we um, sometimes focus on. The, the positive attributes, the bright spots that are out there. Technology has uh, incredible potential to remove barriers um, to inclusion, and not just for persons with disabilities, but across different groups. In, in the case of the, the community that we talk about, the, the increased use of telepresence and avatars and other forms of technology that allow people to be present at work despite transportation barriers that they might engage in or the impacts of their disabilities, which might some barriers to being physically in a workspace. Um, but there's ways to use technologies to, be, to still be engaged. Advancements in artificial intelligence, speech recognition and real-time captioning and visual image recognition, um, those things are all vital resources that can engage or help people to engage and work in different ways, different fields um, that they might have not imagined that they could before. And just the general augmentation of cognitive and physical skills with AI robotics, um, when it comes to processing information or performing manual tasks, there, there are so many um, emerging forms of technology out there that really could be helpful in breaking into new lines of business for people, new career fields, and kind of broadening their horizons for what they think their career options are. I'm going off of that. What maybe challenges does the future of work present when it comes to training employees with disabilities? I think it's really, it comes down to it's a matter of access. Access um, from the starting point of what we talked about in terms of recognition of value and investment, willing, willingness to invest and seeing the, the benefits of that community in, in the workplace. So we need to get to a place where there is, there is an assignment of value that people will do those things. But also the training methods themselves, they can be uh, a challenge. So the, the way that the resources are constructed, the way that the, the training is um, distributed, um, making sure that those things are inclusive of the wide diversity of people with disabilities that are out there. And that's not just from a physical accessibility standpoint, but also you know, from a, a cognitive understanding standpoint, um, making sure that the language is such that you, know, you are being inclusive of who can engage with those resources to acquire those skills. Right, and um, I'm always the optimist. So again, on the flip side of that, um, what ways can we see maybe training uh, innovate in the future of work to improve these um, this training for for people with disabilities and and make it you know a better and more effective experience for them? Yeah, uh, it's again the the platforms, the 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 power of the technology that we have. You know, the you know if you look at things like um, the the massive 
and online courses and even using something like YouTube is people engage with learning um, in different ways. But it's, it's utilizing all of those different um, methodologies to reach an expanded audience and reach them where they are geographically, reach them where they are economically, um, making things uh, available at, at a cost that is affordable. Know, democratizing some of that information, some of that learning, and the, the broader benefit of individuals having opportunity. So I think technology can be a, a great enabling force in that. And employers really have, they have the knowledge for what their needs are going to be in these emerging markets. So to be able to couple those things together and, and distribute that information, hopefully will help to expand opportunity. Well, I certainly hope so. All right. Well, Shane, is there anything else you'd like to add or any thoughts you'd like to leave us with today? I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be part of this conversation. It's, it's only been in the last year and a half or so that the disability community has been largely engaging in this, this topic of the future of work, and there's been more initiatives popping up around that. So any opportunity um, that we have to, to talk with your, your audience to, to raise that awareness and to be engaged in these conversations, I think is, is critically important. So I, I thank you for that opportunity. Well, thank you, Shane. It's been great talking to you today and um, you're doing some great work. So I, we, you know, we all appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today on the business of learning. Thank you so much. Next up, we're speaking with Mika Cross, Vice President of Employer Engagement and Strategic Initiatives at FlexJobs. Mika, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. To get started, we know that the line between work and life often becomes blurred as new technologies allow for greater connectivity among team members and managers. So with that in mind, Mika, how can organizations support work-life balance in the future of work? Well, that's a great question, and I think it's one that's near and dear to most managers and even leaderships and organizations top of mind because the concern is that when you start allowing for different modalities of work and increased levels of flexibility, that people really are sort of all over the place. So ensuring that there is the ability for employees to feel supported, have a choice and a say in how best they can bring their work to the job when they're on duty, but also facilitate sort of a structure around it too, so they're not getting burnt out or overworked is incredibly important. And the first thing I like to advise organizations who are looking to lean on different modalities of work and also increase or start up different flexible work programs is really to invite your employees to the conversation. I mean, it's a fact that we have about five generations of workers in the workplace with us now. Older workers are staying much longer. We're hiring people into, you know, earn while you learn sort of positions, even through internships and um, in college programs. So there's a lot of room for uh, accidental blending of work and life if not done appropriately. But it's also really incredibly important to have the right kinds of technology and the right kinds of policies to support whatever kind of flexible work or remote work kind of programs you have in place in order to support the different ways of working that are going to really set up companies and organizations for success when we're thinking about the future of work as well. So ways to stay connected through technology and communications and collaboration platforms are really important, but also letting people know as soon as they come in the door and even maybe if I could go so far as to talk about the candidate experience when they're a candidate for hire, what it means to work 
um, for this particular organization and what the sort of norms and expectations around culture, availability, accessibility, and also for personal growth and room for what's important in your life outside of work with regards to use of leave policies and paid time off and those flexible programs are incredibly important as well. Yeah, it's definitely a fine line to navigate, isn't it? But definitely one yes. I'll keep top of mind. We're also seeing more and more organizations kind of shift away from the traditional nine to five work schedule. Do you think that the rise of flexible and remote work um, can actually advance diversity and inclusion in the future of work? I absolutely do. And I've seen it firsthand. You know, in my role here at FlexJobs, I work with employers of all sizes, types, industries, from government, public service, and nonprofit, to academia, to Fortune 500, and even mom and pop startups. And if there's one thing I know is that the increased demand for flexible ways of working is not going anywhere. It's completely on the rise. We've seen a 159% growth in remote work offerings. And that doesn't mean fully remote only. It means a variety of in-office and maybe some partial remote options, as well as part-time, seasonal employment, shift work, alternate and compressed work schedules, and really be all of the above in this future of work environment, right? And so the ability for companies to connect with talent regardless of location and also um, based on preference, again, sort of when can we get the best from our workers and the talent that we're looking to connect with, um, when, where, and how they do their best work is increasingly important to the bottom line for any kind of employer and organization. So in leveraging flexible work programs, you're really lifting away some of those traditional barriers to employment for different demographics of workers, whether that be individuals with disabilities, um, both physical and hidden as well, whether that be military spouses who are sort of serving as the only sole family member on the ground when their service member is either deployed or in training. Those are single parents, older workers, caregivers, really D, all of the above. Um, so flexible work really helps to facilitate a structured and integrated strategy for attracting a diverse and inclusive workforce. Definitely. And how would you suggest organizations actually create flexible work environments for employees? And how can these work environments also attract and retain talent in the future? Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting because, I mean, we are quickly shifting away from the traditional industrial age archetype of what work is. You know, not very many positions require you to be on site and physically present or on a piece of machinery or equipment anymore. I mean, some do. Um, but really, we could start thinking about even shifts in work schedules. You know, does it have to be a traditional start time? Could you move your work teams to a shift work type environment? I know an organization out of the state of Maryland who's focused on um, emergency management and disaster preparedness, and they just changed to 12-hour shifts. Um, but they structure it with their policies such that all the team members are on site at the same time, at least one day a week for collaboration and meetings and those sorts of things. I think first and foremost, it's really key to focus on the mission. You know, what kinds of responsibilities are uh, required of the job at hand? Who are your customers and when are they available? And how can you facilitate collaboration, responsiveness, and accessibility 
no matter what through also technology and collaboration. It can't be done just simply through that, but these kinds of flexible work arrangements really do help facilitate a better way of working. Some people also by choice choose to work a traditional kind of position where they are in office. Not everyone has the aptitude to be able to work well independently or in, I, I don't want to say isolation, but sort of, you know, when you're working from home away from the traditional office setting, it's really key for organizations to structure their policies around the work at hand first and the requirements of the job, but also considering what's in the best interest of their customers, their stakeholders, and where their employees reside. So you can facilitate that through collaboration and technology, but you cannot lean on it entirely. So the very best organizations who do this really well offer a variety of work schedules, both part-time and full-time, and some remote-friendly work options. It's also important to manage expectations up front. So organizations who actually embed the type of flexibility that a particular job has available to them in the position description will attract the right kind of candidate who that would work for, both for their career, but also for their life. So earlier in this episode, we talked to Shane Kennedy about um, em employment for individuals with disabilities in the future of work. And I'd like to talk a little bit about a couple other um, underrepresented or at least um, some groups that might face some additional challenges in the, um, mm -hmm. in the work world. Um, and so let's start with women. Uh, do you see any of the challenges that um, are currently faced by women diminishing in the future of work? And are there any new challenges that you think women might face um, in the future? I, I think you know, that's a great question to focus on. And, and some of the trends that we're seeing, especially as it relates to, you know, remote work and distributed work, are that women are able to strip away the, the traditional barriers um, for equity in the workplace when it comes to pay, but also when it comes to working in an organization that might have in the past valued face time and one-on-one -on -one in person interactions more so than the value of <laughs> the output and the productivity of their work. And so in these kinds of environments, women typically tend to thrive very much so, especially if they have other kinds of competing priorities like parenting or caregiving of a spouse or partner um, or being able to further their education. Flexible ways of work allow them to be able to take care of those sorts of responsibilities while still thriving in their regular job as well. So kind of going off of that, um, how do you see these, you know, these changing workplace dynamics that we've been talking about um, impacting the way that organizations and, and learning and development in particular can help women succeed uh, now and into the future? Well, in, in the learning and development field, I think it's really important for companies to increasingly focus on setting all workers up for success, right? And so that's helping them navigate how to position themselves successfully in a remote work environment that might embrace different work schedules or modalities of work and different technologies. You know, the future of work really allows for a lot of freedom, but you have to be able to match those kinds of job opportunities with the right caliber of talent too. And so I think being able to help navigate how do you stay present in a workplace that isn't always just physical presence any longer is incredibly important. You know, 
equipping women, especially with skills also in how to navigate negotiating salary and benefits and different types of work schedule will also, I think, do really well to help level the playing field, so to speak, um, in a number of ways. And then ensuring that the learning and development and technology pieces are all working together to equip all workers with the right sets of skills to continue um, really a continuous learning environment where you're not just reskilling or upskilling, but you're continuously skilling into new ways of working. And going off of that, Mika, you mentioned that benefits can be critical in helping women kind of advance in the workplace. Are there any benefits specifically that you see um, benefiting women in the corporate world? Well, absolutely. Uh, You know, a lot of organizations where there's sort of a hybrid offering of in-office and um, other flexibilities offer new moms, uh, the ability to have privacy. So, you know, there's nursing mothers programs that are available, of course, course, paid parental leave is the big rage um, now. I think, you know, our country is one of the only, if not the only, industrialized nation that doesn't offer paid family leave. And I would say that would really help to retain women in the workplace as well and set them up for success, you know, as they're integrating back after either adoption or fostering or um, birthing their own child. And then there's this dynamic of the sandwich generation. So these are workers who might be caring for dependent children in the home, but also now have the responsibility of taking care of a family member. Um, This also hits home when you're thinking about recruitment of military families and military spouses, again, back to that um, topic as well, which really, if you think about it, you could consider an issue of national security. You know, if we're not equipping our workplaces to support women in thriving, then they're unable to support or really any spouse, um, their service member in defending this country when the time is called for them to do so. So these kinds of programs and, again, the, the wave of the future is really set up to allow for employees to have more flexibility in how they structure their time, but still focus on accountability and results. And it's incredibly important as organizations are focusing on developing and expanding their learning and development programs to help people succeed in that kind of an environment. Because even though they may not choose to participate in a certain way of working, it's likely that their coworkers or colleagues might, or even their customers. For sure. That kind of leads into my next question for you. We do know that veterans, like you mentioned, are another underrepresented community in the Mm -hmm. workplace today. Do you think that L&D can help attract and retain military veterans and their spouses in the future? That learning and development can, I think for sure. Um, And if you combine that well with the things that we've been talking about today, which are non-traditional ways of working, um, you're going to help really attract organizations in bringing in the right kinds of talent and skill sets that they otherwise might not be able to connect with. So, you know, lots of times when military veterans transition out of uniformed service on active duty, they're looking to either go back to hometown USA, um, which could be in rural areas all across the country, or they're looking to find jobs near the installations that they've you know, settled in the, the last time because for proximity sake, it's easier. So having a really well-structured learning and development program that helps integrate military service members 
veterans and spouses into the civilian labor market as it stands now, but also setting them up for success in the future is incredibly powerful and will set them up for long-term success in the civilian labor force. Do you have any advice on how to train veterans just re-entering the workforce? Would we be talking about straight out of service or does it, and I think it depends, right? Like a lot of veterans may already have had an experience in you know, the civilian world where they've worked well in one occupation. One thing I think that's important to keep in mind when you're talking about attracting veterans to the workplace is that oftentimes you'd consider uh, or you might think that a veteran would want to stay in the same occupational series or in the same family as they have done in the military. And that's not often the case. So a lot of times they're looking to advance their education or get hands-on experience in a different field. So I really love this model of um, earn while you learn, like an apprenticeship type of position where you can integrate veterans into the workplace, provide them with regular learning and development and training, maybe on the technical aspect, but also get them some hands-on. Because once you get them into the field and into the culture, they're really going to thrive. I think hands-on experience is extremely important and powerful, and maybe not only just for veterans, really for, for anyone. I know that a lot of elementary and middle schools are focusing on sort of non-traditional ways of learning, um, and it's really important and powerful to give people the option to be able to have tactile and hands-on learning as well as um, sort of the traditional, you know, L&D processes. Right. Uh, to wrap things up, uh, Mika, would, do you have any final thoughts that you want to leave us with about the future of work and ensuring um, equal opportunity for, uh, for all employees? Yeah, I, I do. I think, you know, a lot of times organizations who are putting together new programs that are focused on, you know, adopting future of work modalities sometimes forget about the aspect of culture and the importance of ensuring that their management team understands how to connect with people still. You know, because you could have all the best policies in place, amazing job opportunities, and all the different kinds of flexibility that we could throw at you. But if you're not connecting with the person as well and setting up structures for them to feel like they're supported in the workplace, in any workplace, whether that's in a remote work-from-home position or whether that's in a traditional office, Oftentimes, you'll see, you know, turnover is more high, and it's more challenging to be able to recruit and also retain a diverse workplace. So when you're thinking about inclusion, it's really around how can you encourage the voices, the ideas, and the collaboration from all of your great employees to come together and work together. And that takes work. It's part technology. It's part policy. But it's also a big part of culture. You know, what is that great quote that says, I think it's uh, culture will eat strategy for breakfast. <laughs> and so it's really important to focus on that culture piece and how do you bring in new employees into your organization and keep them connected. And that takes a personal skill, not just the, the traditional L&D tactics that we've seen in the past. All right, Mika, thanks so much for joining us today at the Business of Learning. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here on this segment. For more insights on training and the future of work, and for an animated version of this episode's highlights, check out the show notes for this episode at trainingindustry.com slash trainingindustrypodcast. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us. Thanks for listening. 
If you have feedback about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future program, email us at info at trainingindustry.com or use the contact us page at trainingindustry.com. Thanks for listening to the Training Industry Podcast.